This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I, of course, am your host, David Dole, and coming up on today's show, what is the Ford government slashing funding to now? And their attempt to bury the news in a late Friday email may signal how unpopular these cuts are. Also, pathetic man-child Donald Trump gets triggered once again by SNL, and I take your calls challenging you to name anyone more thin-skinned than Donald Trump. And later on in the show, politics in the UK is heating up. I'll update you on what's going on with Theresa May's Brexit deal and why we may see a new prime minister there soon. All that and more coming up on The David Dole Show. But first, I am joined in studio by D.T. Cochran, a lecturer in business and society at York University and the author of the piece titled Canada Needs Its Own Green New Deal, which you can read at theconversation.com. DT, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, David. So uh, your piece is fantastic. And one thing I I noticed while reading it is you seem to be uh, as plugged in as maybe I am into American politics and uh, sort of what's happening right now with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, some other Democrats in the party that are pushing for uh, a Green New Deal. So what exactly, uh, in your mind, is uh, a Green New Deal, and what does it mean for Canada? So uh, uh, the label of a Green New Deal, of course, harkens back to the efforts of the United States to deal with the Great Depression and uh, an attempt to kickstart their economy. And it led the U.S. government to get much more involved uh, in the economy. And there was a, a, a big boost uh, in, in government spending, and it, and it made up a much larger proportion uh, of the U.S. economy. Uh, and at that time, the effort was simply to get America working again, get American productivity going again. The attachment of the label of a Green New Deal says that the aim is not simply productivity per se. We now need a specific type of productivity. We don't just need uh, to drive the economy forward. We need economic transformation. Mm-hmm. And I really like the message of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, and the other um, primarily young women of color who are leading this effort that they are saying at one and the same time, we can confront the climate crisis and pursue uh, economic justice, that these two things can go hand in hand through something called um, the, a, a Green New Deal. Uh, I think it's important to understand what the limitations of the original New Deal were and then put that in the context of World War II, which was when the American economy really got kick-started. And the, the government involvement in the economy for World War II was orders of magnitude much greater than what it had initially undertaken with the New Deal. Um, I'm always reluctant to describe non-wars in war terms, Mm -hmm. but I think the effort that's required to deal with climate disintegration requires something on par with that of the U.S. effort during World War II, when government spending relative to the years prior increased 500%. And... One of the points I make in the piece was if 
if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the others are, are successful, and that would be huge, and Canada is, is a laggard, then we are going to be left behind. We mm -hmm. can either lead in this or we can follow. And I think it's very important that we be followers in this. And we have the, the opportunity to do so because we have one meager step forward with carbon pricing, but that needs to just be the beginning. We need to follow that up with much more aggressive um, efforts. So what do you say to people that uh, say, well, how can we possibly afford that? How can we possibly afford to to invest into our economy? How can we possibly afford to have a, a Green New Deal to really, um, to, to really transform our economy and our society for this, uh, this new generation of renewable energy? What do you say to the, the cost issue of that? So the first thing I would say would uh, be uh, aping something that, uh, that Ocasio-Cortez has said, that let's think about what issues that question is raised about. Let's think about what... Uh, what people say, oh, how can we possibly afford that? And that tells you a lot about the society in which you live, where to her talking in the U.S. context said, where were these questions about the Space Force? These questions get raised about something far more serious. But secondarily, and even more importantly, it's a profound misunderstanding of how, uh, how the monetary system works. Uh, the Canadian government uh, gets frequently analogized to a household, and that is completely wrong. So uh, organizations like the Canadian uh, Federation of Taxpayers, uh, you have a lot of pundits who they'll say, oh, Canada is, is spending more than it's taking in. It's running, it's running deficit after deficit after deficit. Its debt is just continually growing. That's no way to run a household. The government is not a household. Mm -hmm. The government Prints its own, can print its own money. Mm -hmm. The government can borrow money from itself. It can put as much money out into the economy as it wishes. And this is exactly uh, what the U.S. government had to do during World War II. It pushed tons and tons of financial resources out into the economy as part of the transformation of the economy to a wartime setting. So the Canadian government can do the same thing. It can push financial resources out into the economy to try to direct it from where it's headed right now, which is in, in a climate destructive dis direction, towards um, a pursuit of, of climate integrity, or at the very least, um, trying to prepare Canada for the coming crisis that will have all kinds of uh, qualitative effects that we don't even necessarily foresee yet. Mm -hmm. So what you're discussing there is MMT, so modern monetary theory. I, I really suggest people, if you're listening to this, when you get home or if you're home now, look up MMT, look up modern monetary theory, watch a YouTube video on it and really understand the the uh, situation we're in in terms of our ability, uh, as uh, DD was saying, to, to print our own money, to really invest into our into our economy, into our society, and how that will benefit us if we do that. So, as you were alluding to, I mean, in the U.S., they they just you know increased military spending, gave a a one point something billion dollar tax cut for the, for the rich. I mean, they're able to do that because of MMT. MMT has been used in a, in a negative way to benefit those at the top, but we can use it to actually benefit our society, to actually reinvest into into our society. So, um, uh, going off that. What exactly, so for people listening at home, what would be the impact for, say, the average Canadian if we were to implement a, a Green New Deal? 
So I first just want to briefly touch on an important distinction to be made in MMT, where on the yep. one hand, it's a theory of how the monetary system actually works. And in, in that, from that perspective, it's not, it's not really something that's up for debate. They describe the way monetary systems actually function. And this is, this is simply the case. If you go and look at Canadian uh, government documents about where money actually comes from, it is described in precisely these these terms. And mm -hmm. printing money is a bit of a misnomer. The, it's just a few keystrokes. And the, 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 Can the Bank of Canada can move millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars into the Canadian government's account. The other aspect of it then is the ethical perspective. Okay, once we understand that this is how the monetary system works, what do we do with that? Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the proponents of MMT, not all of them, but a lot of them are on board with the idea of a Green New Deal saying, okay, the U.S. government can put trillions of dollars out into the economy and it should do so towards uh, transforming the economy into a zero emissions, carbon neutral footing. Um, now, back to your question, what would it mean for Canada? It would mean absolute and utter economic transformation. Um, it would mean jobs that exist right now would cease to exist, but the government would be able to step in and provide the funds to uh, do retraining, to establish uh, new industries that are specifically intended to be carbon neutral. Uh, I think there's lots of grounds for Canada to be a leader in research and development of new energy technologies, of new transit technologies. Canada is a huge country. We have lots of remote communities. We're very dependent on fossil fuels to transport people and goods between those, those communities. Mm -hmm. We need to solve that problem. That's a huge problem that will require a ton uh, of research and development. We have uh, we have the brain power. We have the labor power. We are a resource rich country. So we have the resources. It simply requires a financial impetus of the government pushing the funds into those sorts of areas. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking with uh, D.T. Cochran, a lecturer in business and society at York University and the author of the piece titled Canada Needs Its Own Green New Deal, which you can read at theconversation.com. So uh, going off what you were saying there, one of the investments that I think we could potentially make as an example of this is uh, the GM plant. So the uh, GM is giving up their plant in Oshawa. How could, uh, you know, in this idea of, of a Green New Deal, how could the Canadian government sort of uh, use that plant as a, as a jumping off point for this uh, idea? So in, in the piece, I, I offer just some very kind of quick, quick suggestions about what that, that could look like. The Canadian government could absolutely buy that plant. It could keep all of the workers that currently employed there employed, and it could transform that plant from a private for-profit undertaking producing trucks intended for the consumer market towards research and development and production of uh, forward-looking zero emission transportation technology. It could become a hub of research and development. Uh, it could be a kind of a testing ground. And beyond that, it could be a place where we try out new sorts of, uh, new forms of economic organization. So that plant mm -hmm. was operated uh, ultimately in service of GM's bottom line. So everything else that might go on at that plant, it all had to make sense from the perspective of GM's bottom line line. 
is that really the way a, a plant like that should function? Should that be its, its baseline standard for success or failure? So in the piece, I kind of flippantly say that perhaps it should be turned into a workers cooperative. Mm -hmm. All of these highly skilled, very intelligent auto workers, what could they do uh, with that plant if they were given much more control over it. And in that way, it could serve not just to produce uh, tangible goods that uh, are of interest in our transition towards a, a post-carbon society, it could serve as a model for different ways uh, of actually organizing the economy. Mm -hmm. So um, this is, uh, I guess, sort of related, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on the Trudeau government purchasing the $4.5 billion pipeline, because this is I mean, in my opinion, this is money that could have been used to say, do what you're saying with the GM plant, to, to purchase that and turn that into a worker cooperative. Uh, a worker cooperative. Um, but what, uh, so this $4.5 billion uh, pipeline, what, uh, what are your thoughts on, on that? So it, it, was, it was effectively a, a bailout when Kinder Morgan announced uh, that they were ceasing all non-necessary construction. Um, the CEO at the time said that there was unquantifiable risk associated with this pipeline. And mm -hmm. that is, that's the death knell for any project. If you can't quantify risk, you can't quantify the project, and so then you can't proceed uh, on the basis of the financial understanding that's required for these, these types of things. So the government stepping in, kind of re-quantified it, now brought the project onto, the, onto Canada's books. Um, Ryerson professor Shiri Pasternak and Sequet McLan defender Kanehus Manuel, they wrote a piece for the Yellowhead Institute saying, okay, now we own it, let's kill it. Let's mm -hmm. kill the expansion project mm -hmm. because uh, not only is that against uh, our responsibility in terms of uh, climate integrity, it completely goes against indigenous rights, the, the people whose land this, the existing pipeline passes through and whose jurisdiction will be violated to try to construct this, this expansion. And I think that, that that's exactly right for serving the other interest of our need to wind down tar sands production. Mm -hmm. that the tar sands make a huge contribution to global emissions. Uh, the pipeline serves that. Expanding the pipeline would only increase the incentives to uh, extract from the tar sands, creating more emissions. Mm -hmm. So we own the pipeline. Let's bring the expansion for sure to an end, and let's start thinking about ways to start ramping down production from the tar stands to start ramping down uh, the, the bitumen flowing through the pipeline. Obviously on the other end of that, we need to consider, okay, how is that gonna affect Vancouver? How do we solve the issue mm -hmm. of their current need for fossil fuels? A high desire in Vancouver to shift away from that. So you have the desire, again, you have the brain power, the labor power, you have the resources to make that transition. This is going to require an incredible amount of effort, an incredible amount of planning, none of which is going to come from the markets. So it's going to require bodies like the Canadian government with this pipeline in hand, able to say, okay, we're gonna wind down production in the tar sands, we are going to kill the expansion of, of the Trans Mountain, we're gonna ramp down um, the, the, the use of, of the pipeline, and we need to identify the problems that will come out of that and then work to solve those problems, like the loss of jobs that exist in, in the mm -hmm. tar sands. 
how are we going to, to deal with that? And the Canadian government is uniquely placed because of its ability to spend, because of its sovereign currency status, to solve these kinds of problems. Now, one of the ways uh, one of the ways we've kind of wound down our our or supposedly tried to wind down our dependence on fossil fuels is through a, a carbon tax. Now, we see uh, the uprising in in France against the the fuel tax. There, do you want to discuss sort of the uh, I guess the the limited ability for a carbon tax to really transform the economy the way we need it to to, to be transformed, and also sort of why. Uh, France is the uh, the people there are, are angry at this this fuel tax. So I'm I'm absolutely uh, an advocate for carbon pricing. Um, emissions are a form of what's called an externality. So in any kind of market transaction, the ideal of the market is that all costs and benefits get accounted for between the participants in that transaction. Mm -hmm. The reality is that lots of costs and some benefits end up overflowing the transaction uh, and other people bear those costs. And climate change is probably the biggest cost that's born as an externality of all of the market transactions that create um, that create emissions. So putting a carbon price in place is one way to start accounting for that. That said, this pricing will affect different people uh, disproportionately, and it will tend to affect poorer, more precariously placed people um, harder than wealthier people, despite the fact that the wealthier you are, the more responsibility you have for the current climate crisis. So. Mm -hmm. The, the current opposition to carbon pricing is really a demand to maintain a carbon subsidy. So the, the Jason Kennys of the world, mm -hmm. uh, they're wanting to maintain a, a subsidy that's disguised in the market. Mm -hmm. By putting in place carbon pricing and recognizing that some people will be disproportionately harmed, then we can explicitly subsidize certain people to try to mitigate that harm. But all of this should be as transparent as it possibly can be. Okay, we're gonna price carbon. Some people are gonna be harmed by that. Let's identify who is harmed and how, and then intervene to assist them to mitigate that harm, and then try to uh, offset it elsewhere because Part of that subsidy will generate more emissions and so now we have responsibility to respond to that elsewhere mm -hmm. but this should all be as out in the open as we possibly can instead of having this clandestine subsidy that exists with the lack of carbon pricing yeah and, and one of the issues in in france was that the 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 onus for climate change policy was falling onto the poor and the middle class while the, the wealthy was sort of getting away with it and, and they were getting tax breaks from from uh, macron there so I mean, when you when you force the system onto the poor and the middle class, when you, when you force the the cuts onto them or the impact uh, you impact them the most, it's going to turn around because you have to show that you are actually trying to invest into your people and uh, not just benefit those at the top. Which, as we see with you know neoliberal governments all over the all over the world, we're seeing that again and again. Where they, these are governments designed to listen to the powerful, to the wealthy, to corporations, while ignoring the needs of the poor and the middle class. Um, I do want to ask you, so who, 
who should be the voice of of a Green New Deal in in Canada? So we have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the U.S. and a few other um, uh, upcoming uh, Democrats there. Uh, Bernie Sanders is, is a strong voice for climate change policy as well. Uh, but in Canada, I feel there we don't have at least very visible strong leaders right now. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, isn't even I mean doesn't have a seat yet in in uh, in Parliament. So uh, who should be the voice of this or who could be the voice of this in the future for a green new deal in Canada? So the, the young, I think are, are the ones who are going, who are getting um, more and more vocal. Um, that young woman, Greta Thunberg, uh, who spoke recently, she's 15 year old oh, yes. who called yep. out world leaders for their absolute utter failure to deal with this crisis that we've now seen unfolding over decades. Mm -hmm. um, you have the Sunrise Movement in the in the U.S. Uh, there's a class action lawsuit by young people in the U.S. against the government saying your lack of action is harming us because it's our future. Um, that you're relinquishing with your lack of action. A class action lawsuit was just launched um, by young people in Quebec mm -hmm. that's that's moving forward. Uh, so I think we need to be really listening to young voices. Mm -hmm. um, I think we also need to be listening to indigenous leaders, uh, indigenous people, especially those living on the land. Um, they're the ones who've been seeing the effects of climate change for a long time. Yeah. Uh, the group Indigenous Climate Action works to try to raise their voices. They're the ones who've witnessed the effects of climate change. Um, again, people who have contributed the least to it are the ones who are paying the prices, um, but they are also the ones who have simply out of necessity, had to respond and alter the way they, they live on the land. Yeah. Um, so I think they, they have a lot of lessons to teach us about what sustainable living would look like, which I think would also go a long way towards reconciliation, which our yeah. government got elected on and has mm -hmm. done next to nothing about. Yeah. Um, I would love to see uh, the federal Green Party really speak up about this. Unfortunately, they've tended to take a very market-based yeah, line. Uh, I don't know how much that's done for kind of marketability purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, the NDP during the last federal election decided it, they should campaign on balanced budgets, which made absolutely yeah. no sense. <laughs> there has to be this real turn to the left because we, ha we are, I mean, letting these this sort of ideology, this where we're always looking for a market-based approach, always looking to to the the wealthy and to corporations for the answer. We have to really take a sort of a mental shift off of that. And I think part of that the equation there, just to go to my my last question here, is is the media. So uh, I think the media has really failed us as a whole in in really uh, educating the the our society on the need for real climate change policy, the need for something like a a, a green new deal. So. What do you think, uh, how should, in, in, the per, in a perfect world, how do you see the media covering climate change and our, and our uh, need to address it? So I, there, there was a piece that went around a, a while ago saying that the media needs to be careful not to over-sensationalize the uh, dire the dangers that are that are coming from climate change because it can really turn people off. They can feel like this is absolutely and utterly hopeless. Yeah. Um, so they need to obviously report much more uh, 
just much more on the, the realities of, of climate change. They need to shut down any notion that there's two sides to this issue. Mm -hmm. The science of climate change is settled. The yeah. science of anthropogenic climate change is settled. This is happening. It's our fault. But there is... Um, there are there are solutions, not necessarily to reversing climate change, but to trying to prepare for the post-carbon future that's coming one way or another. Mm -hmm. So reporting much more widely on how climate change is affecting people mm -hmm. and how how people are responding to try to mitigate those effects and what the shortcomings are in their ability to do so, which would be shortcomings that a powerful central body like the federal government is uniquely placed to assist with. D.T. Cochran is a lecturer in business and society at York University and the author of the piece titled Canada Needs Its Own Green New Deal, which you can read at theconversation.com. D.T., thanks for joining me. Thanks again. Coming up next, what is the Ford government slashing funding to now? And their attempt to bury the news may signal how unpopular these cuts are. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. The David Dole Show continues on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to The David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. According to an exclusive piece in The Star, the Ford government has cut millions in funding for programs that provide after-school jobs for needy teens, classroom tutors for kids, student success support for racialized youth, as well as a project focusing on Indigenous issues. So... This, uh, so emails were received by Ontario's 72 school boards late Friday with a list of cut programs and funding reductions. Now, a news tip for listeners. In politics, if there is an announcement made late on a Friday, it's an attempt to bury the story. So it's not surprising that this is uh, going to upset a lot of people. So the funding here was promised to the school boards in March by the uh, the Liberal government. And uh, in some cases, this money may have already been spent. So this is a, a $25 million cut to school programs, in addition to the $100 million cut to the school repair fund that uh, Doug Ford already made over uh, the summer. Now, some people may ask, but, but the deficit, the $14.5 billion or whatever the hell it is. So, <laughs> look... This is, that would be a, a, you know, maybe a good argument if the Doug Ford government didn't give a tax break to the highest income earners worth $275 million a year. So why exactly are these cuts continuing to programs that benefit the poor, the middle class, and really everyone? I mean, these are programs that are essential, yet here they are cutting programs that people use, that, you know, the average day uh, Ontarian uses, but they will give a tax break to the highest income earners worth $275 million a year. It, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, look to that other piece of news uh, th this past week where they, they cut a choir worth $7,000. I mean, $7,000. Compare that once again to the $275 million a year 
in in the tax break for the highest income earners. There's just there's no comparison here. So it's all about looking at Doug Ford's priorities. And when you look at his priorities, his priorities appear to be his buddies, the wealthy, developers, and landlords. Now, uh, the reaction to this uh, to this cut that uh, once again a twenty five million dollar cut to school programs in Ontario. There's a reaction here from uh, Maria Rizzo, chair of the Toronto Catholic District School Board. She says, quote, I have serious concerns. I'm sick to my stomach because I'm afraid of the steps that we've taken on poverty, on Indigenous education, and even in the Focus on Youth program, that uh, we've hired our kids in the most vulnerable school communities, in the neediest neighborhoods, just to give them a leg up. Rizzo also said the government only just wrapped up its widespread public consultations on the education system on uh, Saturday, and she would have expected the ministry to listen to what parents want before making these decisions. But clearly, this decision was already made and went out on Friday night in an, in an attempt to bury the news. Now, looking at cuts like this, look, I don't have kids. A lot of people don't have kids. But you don't need kids to understand that we need to invest in our youth, invest in the future of our province to benefit us in in the future. So just take a you know an empathetic look at this. You have to understand that there are cuts to these programs that even, even if they don't affect you personally, they are going to affect many people. Now, before I get to uh, I want to get to a response from the um, uh, the Ministry of Education. But look, like one of these programs is called Focus on Youth. So this is an after-school program that was cut. The uh, the summer program still exists, which is I will I mean I'll admit that's good. But this is a, this was also an after-school program that funds part-time positions for students who live in needy neighborhoods to work with youth, and was started after the summer of deadly violence involving Toronto youth. Now we need to be investing into these neighborhoods. That's how you prevent kids from joining gangs, from going down a path of violence. You need to offer them other opportunities. So if we are now cutting programs like this, it's going to have a direct impact on kids in these, in these communities that are more uh, at-risk communities. It's going to negatively impact them and potentially set these kids up for a worse life than they would have had otherwise had this program existed. Now, um, Friday's email from the Ministry of Education obtained by the Star says it is committed to supporting our students so they have the skills to succeed, to succeed in school and in life. But also that uh, one of the government's top priorities is making life more affordable for individuals and families while restoring trust, transparency and accountability to Ontario's finances. But again, all you have to do is look back at the $275 million a year in tax breaks that the highest income earners in Ontario got, and ask yourself, is this government really being transparent and accountable to Ontario's finances? Again, this is, a, <laughs> I keep going back to this 275 number because I feel like a lot of people didn't know this even happened. This was in their economic update. It was buried in there. And if you search it, you're going to find a couple articles mention it, but it really was not a focus, and it should be a focus. Anytime you see one of these programs that are being cut, for the average person, go back and look at that 275 uh, million a year in a tax breaks for the highest earners, and ask yourself: Is the Ontario government actually being responsible with our finances? So, again, these grants were uh, canceled for tutors in the classroom, 
student success leaders for racialized students, indigenous-focused collaborative inquiry, and support for daily physical activity for elementary and secondary students. All of these programs are getting cuts. Now, once again, the Ford government giving a tax break worth $275 million a year to the highest income bracket in Ontario while taking away money for schools. Coming up next, precious little snowflake President Donald Trump just can't take a joke. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. You're listening to the David Dole Show, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Now, Donald Trump continues his reign as one of the most thin-skinned leaders the world has ever seen. Now, do you know anyone as thin-skinned, as sensitive as Donald Trump? Maybe someone in your life. Maybe it's another celebrity. Give me a call at 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. Now, what exactly am I talking about? Why is, why is Donald Trump thin-skinned this week? Well, uh, last night, SNL aired its version of It's a Wonderful Life in an eight-minute opening segment called It's a Wonderful Trump, where Trump never became president. It's awful. Everything's falling apart. Sometimes I wish I had never been president. A world where you were never president, eh? <laughs> I think we can arrange that. Wow, everyone looks so different. What are those things on their faces? Those are called smiles. <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> that's just one of the many jokes in that fantastic eight-minute segment. Uh, it goes on with appearances from the SNL versions of uh, Sarah Sanders, Kellyanne Conway, and others within Trump's orbit whose lives are so much better in this world where Trump never became president. Like, uh, for example, Melania Trump, uh, who uh, in this version uh, of uh, SNL's uh, world where Trump never became president, she uh, got divorced and started her own successful real estate business. Now, um, I'm not sure if that's the one that set Trump off, but <laughs> it may have been the whole segment. It may have been the joke about his hair, about how, uh, how, um, how, much, uh, his, how much better his hair is. In, uh, in this future world, or in this other world. Um, but the pathetic man-child tweeted this out uh, about it this morning, saying, quote, A real scandal is the one-sided coverage, hour by hour, of networks like NBC and Democrat spin machines like Saturday Night Live. It's all, uh, it is all nothing less than unfair news coverage, and Democrat commercials should be tested in court, can't be legal, only defame and belittle. Collusion? End quote. <laughs> no, I just don't. This is this is ridiculous. But we have to every now and every now and then remind ourselves how absurd it is that this man is president, that this is the guy who is the, the leader of the so-called free world. I mean, this is this is a guy who is so thin skinned that he can't even take jokes on SNL. So, I mean, and this isn't even the first time. <laughs> There's been past tweets from him on SNL. Here's one from uh, November 20th, 2016, shortly after he was elected. He tweeted out, quote, I watched parts of uh, NBC SNL last night. It is totally one-sided. Buy a show. Nothing funny at all. Equal time for us? I mean, again, do you know anyone as thin-skinned 
as sensitive as Donald Trump, give me a call, 416-872-1010. You can also text me at 71010. Now, I have some experience with, uh, with hate. I get it every day. I'm a, I'm a YouTube guy. I have a YouTube show. Go to uh, therationalnational.com. You'll see it. I, and really, go check it out. Read the comments. There are plenty. There's plenty of hate. I mean, there's plenty of positive comments, too, I have to say. But uh, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of hate. And this stuff just rolls off my back because, I mean, I guess I'm just, I don't care. Uh, I'm aware that uh, what I'm discussing is, is in fact, informed. I, I don't try and lie to my audience unlike Donald Trump, who, you know, apart from lying about how his policies are going to help people, is just completely living in another world if he doesn't realize uh, how close he is to something happening to him in this Mueller investigation. So, I mean, looking at a list of ex-Trump aides who were indicted and uh, struck plea deals in Mueller's probe includes George Papadopoulos, former Trump campaign for foreign policy advisor, Michael Cohen, of course, Trump's former lawyer, Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign chair, and Michael Flynn, Trump's former national security advisor. It's getting closer. I mean, the walls are closing in on Donald Trump, and maybe that's what's setting him off, but he's always been this thin-skinned. Do you remember back when he uh, tried to sue Bill Maher because Bill Maher said that he was the product of, a, of an orangutan? I mean, <laughs> again... This is a guy who maybe he doesn't understand how jokes work, how they are not supposed to be uh, supposed to be literal and how you look. Even if you are the butt of a joke, which Donald Trump is definitely the butt of many jokes, it does not mean that you should be affected by it. Again, you are the president. Why is this bothering you? Now, another reason why he may be bothered by this is a. A new NBC Wall Street Journal poll asked voters in the U.S. whether Trump has been honest about the Russia investigation. So a 62 percent majority say Trump has not been honest about the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential campaign, up from 56 percent in August. And just 38 percent say they would probably or definitely vote for Trump if he seeks a second term, while 52 percent say they'd probably or definitely vote for the Democratic candidate. Now, we have a call here from uh, Eric. So, Eric, what are your thoughts on this? Well, my thoughts are, with all due respect about 1010 News Station and you as a host, you guys have to get out of the, that personal uh, a bubble, liberal bubble that is created in, a, in a certain areas of U.S. and mostly on Canada. Who cares what Donald Trump does personally or he has done in the past? Who, everybody cares what Donald Trump stands for, how he is standing for what is a real American and the true Canadians, rather than trying to turn North America in the international ghetto that all of you are bashing him and going after him. And those all those polls that you are mentioning over there, they're nonsense. That's the same polls that said that Donald Trump would never fake be news. president. It's fake news, right? It's like fake news. Absolutely fake news. <laughs> so uh, how, has, how has Trump, let me ask you this. Uh, in your mind, how has Trump helped uh, the American people? In many ways. So far, most, and it's only two years, huh? Most of the manufacturing jobs that are all over the Europe, China, and other countries, they are withdrawing slowly and surely and quietly, which media never pays attention to them, and they are bringing the money back to U.S., investment back to U.S., 
And this is just the start. It's not just Donald Trump. Don't kid yourself. This is an, an, an international agenda that is organized against those individuals that have started eight years ago with Mr. Obama to try to make globalization and possibly, possibly the world with as little or no borders at all. All right, Eric, uh, I, I would love to let you go on, but, but we got to go. Eric, thank you so much for the call. That was, uh, unfortunately, that was all fake news. Um, none of what Eric just said was true. Uh, <laughs> Trump has, in fact, pretty much just continued what Obama did. And now, look, I, I mean, well, I, I wouldn't say just continue. He's also done things like destroy the EPA, which has affected uh, water protections, affected uh, asbestos. I mean, we can go on and on with the damage Trump has caused in terms of uh, things that he's sort of done under the, the, uh, the guise of, of helping people, of, of being, uh, you know, make America great again. But the reality is Trump whether it's his policies or whether it's just his, his thin-skinned approach to, to comedy, Trump is uh, not, in fact, making America great again. Coming up next, stories you may have missed this week, including some insanity in the UK. This is The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture, right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. So this week I've covered Canadian news, a bit of American culture. Now let's take a journey to the UK, where this was going on. This house agreed a program motion. Yes. This house agreed the five days of debate. This house agreed when the vote was going to take place. The government tried to unilaterally pull that and deny this house, deny this house the chance of a vote on this crucial matter. The Prime Minister and her government have already been found to be in contempt of Parliament. Her behaviour today is just contemptuous of this Parliament and of this process. Now, that was Jeremy Corbyn, Labour Party leader in the UK, going after Theresa May and her failed Brexit deal, her inability to get a vote on her Brexit deal. And this is potentially moving towards uh, a new leader, a uh, new leadership in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn uh, Seen as, I mean, if there's an election call between uh, before 2022, which is expected, Jeremy Corbyn will likely become the next prime minister of the UK. And part of it will, because, will be because the, of the failed uh, leadership of Theresa May on this Brexit deal. You can follow me on Twitter at David Dole, Nate, last name spelled D-O-E-L. I'm off for the next two weeks, so visit me on YouTube at therationalnational.com. And thanks for listening to The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.